Today our reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 through 15, or chapter 23, excuse me, 1 through 15. 14. 14. Uh, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. But how much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When in Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David in, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by, in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then, God, then David and his men, who were about 600, rose and depart, departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Good morning, everyone. Um, let's start with prayer, and then we'll open up God's word. Lord, what a magnificent statement you've given us in your word that we address you as I am, that you just are. You just exist. You are the source of all else. You are the source of every other bit of existence. And your name, your covenant name to your people is I am. Lord, thank you for being the great I am. And then appearing in a burning bush, um, coming to us in a tabernacle, and, uh, and Lord, most importantly, coming in the person of your son, that Jesus Christ would come and dwell among us. He would pitch his tent among us. And Lord, we would behold his glory. What a magnificent privilege we have. Thank you for that. And Lord, it's also our privilege to 
draw near to you in prayer, to, to speak to you and know, Lord, because of Jesus, our great high priest, our, pre our prayers are heard. And so we ask that you'd hear our prayers now. Lord, I want to pray again for my sister Joanne Sadler, um, back out of the hospital, back into assisted living, um, and uh, still waiting on uh, an appointment for her knee surgery. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, expedite that process for her, Lord, that you would move her through this quickly. And Lord, again, we pray for her faith. We pray for her steadfastness. We pray that you would be with her in her loneliness and her struggle, Lord, in, in um, her need and her, her want. Uh, Lord, would you remind her of your love for her and your uh, patient care for her. And Lord, just be with her. I pray for all the saints who are able to go and visit her, that we would bring the aroma of Christ and remind her of, of God's love for her. And so have mercy on her, we pray. And Father, we also want to pray for Katie Crawford's mom, um, who has been diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer, and uh, they're working on a plan on how to address it. Lord, would you be with that entire family? And we pray for her mom's deliverance, her healing and her restoration. And again, we're grateful that Katie could be there with her during this difficult process. And then, Father, we pray for our uh, previous pastor, Daniel Holmquist, and the struggles that he's having in his church and in his health. Uh, Lord, would you strengthen him, um, help him to find your strength made perfect in his physical weakness um, at the moment as he's going through chemotherapy again. Um, Lord, uh, thank you that uh, you walk through this with him and that he is uh, remaining faithful to you. And Lord, we pray for uh, for Calvary EV Free, that you would uh, manifest your glory to and through them. And uh, would you bring the unity of the spirit of peace to that congregation. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask that you'd be with us and to help us to understand, help us to see, help us to believe, to trust, and to sink your message deep into our hearts, minds, and our souls. For our sake and for your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, Lisa and I have been traveling quite a bit so far this month. Uh, the first week my daughter was here, our middle child was, was visiting, and so we went to Disneyland and we saw Orange County and did some things, and then we came home. And then the second week we went to San Diego because she had a, a conference down in San Diego for her job, and so we spent a week in San Diego, and then we came home. And then last week we were down in Orange again because of the National Conference for the Free Church, and now we're home. <laughs> so it's just been a back and forth kind of week. One of the things I noticed when we were down in Orange County, and I, I don't know where this comes from, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I remember seeing in a couple of different places the simple statement, faith not fear. And the last one I remember seeing, it was like on a board about the size of a full sheet of plywood, and it just said, faith not fear. And I was like, what does that mean? What is that coming from? So I Googled it, because that's what you do when you have, you know, a supercomputer connected to all human wisdom in your pocket. And what I found was a couple clothing companies who were selling that. One of them, it was kind of a ministry, and they wanted to counter the fear that the media propagates and, and you know, bring faith. I was like, that's, that's honorable. That's a good thing. But on a board just plastered up on a wall, I, as I was driving one time, I, I was alone and I had a chance to think about it. And I said, you know, there's, because there's no context to it, there's a problem with that statement. Because it sounds like it's setting up, if you're afraid, then you don't have faith. And if you have faith, you're never afraid. And that's simply not true. That's, that, that can be dangerous because if you feel afraid, you think, well, I must have lost my faith or something. And, and it's not right. It isn't, it isn't correct. So for example, 
if you were in a strange house and you stepped into a dark room and you hear an odd noise and you notice something move past the windows, the proper response is fear. I don't know what's in this room. Is it going to hurt me? That's not a lack of faith. And it's not faith to stand there and go, well, nothing can touch me. That's foolishness. There might be something actually dangerous there. And if you flip on the light switch and you look and say, oh, there's a rickety old radiator making noise and the window's slightly open and that's moving the curtains, that's not faith. That's fact. That's knowledge. So the opposite of faith is not, or the opposite of fear is not faith. You can be a faithful, believing person and have fear. And, and I think it's an important distinction because you don't want to shipwreck yourself on this idea that I'm, I'm afraid, therefore I must not be faithful or my faith isn't strong enough. A really great illustration I heard was when Israel left Egypt and they're crossing the Red Sea, the, the water is standing up like a wall on each side of them as they go across. And you could tell there were, there were various different people going through this and you know there was somebody going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Look at this, this is impossible, we're going to die. And they get through and they're saved. And you know there was somebody else that came by and they're sticking their hand into the water and going, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. This is really neat. And they get to the other side and they're saved. So whether they were frightened or whether they thought that was just the neatest thing they'd ever seen, they had faith and they walked through. The person who didn't have faith said, I'm not going in there. That, that's nuts. So the opposite of faith is not fear. That's an important distinction because you can be afraid and still be faithful. So that's the lesson I think that the, the, uh, the section is teaching us this morning is that we can have fear and faith and they, they can go together. But we can also have fear and not have faith. And so there's, a, there's some uh, important lessons to learn in this. So where we're at in this is David has, um, has fled uh, Saul has gone and destroyed the priests at Nob, and then David took his troops who came and joined him. We saw last week there were about 400 people joined him and his family, and he took his family to Moab and dropped them off for security, and he hung out in the strongholds until Gad the prophet came and said, hey, don't stay here. And so he fled, and he went back into Judah, and he was in the forest of uh, Hereth, and that's where we left him last week. So the story kind of picks up now. Uh, important qualification as we get into this. The timeline, the chronology of chapters 22 and 23 is hard to discern because the way the writer wrote it is, here's David, here's Saul. Here's David, here's Saul. We don't get a real strict timeline. And so uh, that'll come up in a, in a few minutes. I'll explain why that's important. So we don't know exactly how all this fits together, but we know the basic lay of the land. So David is in the forest of Harith. He's got about 400 people with him. And it says that uh, David is told the Philistines are attacking Calah and robbing the threshing floor. So what that means is uh, the, the Philistines would come out and they would attack. They had raiders who would run in and they came to the threshing floor and they stole the grain. Now it's on the threshing floor, so it hasn't been threshed yet. It's still in its raw, unprocessed form, but that's still riches in those days. Food was riches. And so the Philistines are going in and stealing this. This is putting Kayla at a very significant disadvantage. They could wind up starving to death. They could wind up being really in a bad shape. And so David hears about this. And so what he says is he says, he inquires the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said, go and attack the Philistines and save Kayla. How did God ask, or how did uh, David ask the Lord? Well, you could be thinking because of the end of the chapter that um, 
that uh, Abiathar is there with the, the ephod, and, and maybe that's what's happening. But verse 6 is when Abiathar shows up. So we're not sure of the timeline here. The way that this first part plays out, it sounds like he's casting lots because he asks yes or no questions. Shall I go? Yes, go. Okay, so the Lord has answered him. Maybe, Gath, maybe Gad is still with him and has addressed this. We don't know. It's not important because how he got the message is not what the issue is. The issue is he was told, go and save Kayla. So he gets ready to go. But David's men said to him, uh, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? In other words, we're hiding out in the woods. We're barely making it. Saul is going to get us anytime he possibly can. Are you nuts telling us to go fight Philistines on top of that? We could be in the middle of the battle and Saul could show up and get us. They're terrified. They're frightened of this. And so what David does is not say, come on, man up. Go find a spine. Let's go do this. Nor does he go, oh, sorry, gang. Let's, let's go hang out in the woods some more. What he does is the right thing. He inquired of the Lord again. Lord, I believe you. My men don't, and we need to. So he inquires again. Um, and the Lord answered, Arise, go to Cala, for I have given the Philistines into your hand. The answer the second time is even more sure. It's more clear. Go and do it. And so David and his men went to Cala, and they fought the Philistines and brought away cattle and livestock and struck them a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. Can we get some more details on the battle? I mean, that would be really interesting. How did 400 misfits wind up taking this, this Philistine garrison? Because remember who joined David last time? It was everybody who was in distress or troubled in spirit or in debt. This was not the best and brightest in Israel. This was the rabble. These were people who were on the edges of society. And apparently they're chicken. They're frightened. And this is who God gave David. And this is who God led through David to go in and to deliver this town. Now, Kayla is a small town. It was a border town. It faced, actually faced Philistine territory. So it was always in danger. There was always kind of uh, uh, on, in trouble. Some of the commentators theorize it might not even have been an Israelite city. It might have just been this kind of unaligned city. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on. But look, who, look at what happens. These people who don't have the resources, they're already distressed in spirit. That's why they're so frightened, who are, um, who are depressed because life has gone against them. These are the folks that God chose to deliver this city, to defeat more Philistines. How did they do that? How on earth could they have done that? Well, look at what they had going for them. What resources did they have? They didn't have money. They didn't have um, uh, up, you know, a high morale. They didn't have you know, this esprit de corps, we're going to go do anything. What they did have is, first of all, they had the word of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. So it didn't erase their fear. It didn't make their fear disappear, but it answered it. It said, yeah, you should probably be afraid. This is a big expedition. This is a major undertaking. But you have the word of the Lord telling you to go and that you'll be successful. So fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? That's who we're supposed to fear. And I've had a discussion with this recently with, with some people um, is fear of the Lord actually fear? Or is it just respect? Well, there's a perfectly good Hebrew and Greek word for respect. The fear of the Lord is actually fear of the Lord because he is so much bigger than you. 
He is so much more powerful than you. He is able to do whatever he desires. And so when somebody that big and that powerful says, now come and be close to me, it's a frightening thing because you're absolutely not in control of that relationship, are you? What are you going to bring to the owner of the entire universe to bribe him into loving you? Or to what are you going to offer him that will, that will curry his favor? We're, just at, we're at the significant disadvantage, so the fear of the Lord is a good fear, but it's not a servile fear where we're terrified he's going to turn and hurt us and, and he, could, he could strike at us any moment. It, the fear of the Lord is this, this looking to him and saying, you are so much bigger, you're so much more significant, you're so much more powerful than I am, and you bid me to come, and so I come with respect and awe and love and all of those things. So fear of the Lord is good. Fear is not a bad thing. Um, what faith says is, when I'm afraid, Psalm 56, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. What can flesh do to me? Kill me. But is that a loss? If they kill me, then I'm just with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I can't lose. But even that takes faith, doesn't it? That takes trusting God's word that when I die, something horrible won't happen to me. It takes trusting the Lord's word to say, I put my hope in Jesus Christ, and therefore I count on being welcomed to the courts of heaven. So it's still faith. But when I put my faith in the Lord, when I fear and I do that, then what can flesh do to me? So that's the hope they had, was trusting in God's word in the face of fear. Your fear is real. It's actual. It is, it is a visceral. It happens within you. you. Your adrenaline goes up. You have actual physiological responses. That's real. That's not fake. But it's not necessarily accurate. It, it could be that it's a radiator and a blowing curtain. Nothing to fear. But you can't do anything about that in the moment. So to, to have that fear, what we have to remember is, first and foremost, God's word is true. What God says is true, or what God says is what's true. What I feel may be accurate, it may be inaccurate. It may be well-placed, it may be misplaced. So know that those emotions are going to be there, but don't trust them. Believe in the, in the words of the Lord. So the first thing they had was God's word. Go down and you will deliver them. Second of all, they had God's leader. Who did they come out to, to, to join with? Who did they seek out? They didn't go to Saul. Saul wasn't helping them. They went to David. They came to David in debt. They came to David in distress. They became to David depressed and, and sore in spirit. They went to the right person because what did God say? I will be with you. His spirit departed from, from Saul and went on David and was always there. So they had the, the word of God assuring them. They had the right leader. That, that this was the one that God had chosen. This is the leader that God was going to work through. This was the one who was going to deliver Israel. They had the right leader. And then finally, they had God's presence. If God is with David, as he promised he would be, then to be with David is to be with where God is at. That's a good thing to do. Does any of that sound familiar? Does any of that feel familiar? We have God's word. We have more of God's word than they did. So what they had is they had drawing of lots, and that would determine how God was speaking to them. 
we don't have that. We have the completed scriptures. We have all that God has said in, in his word, his, his written word. But Hebrews chapter 1, in previous times, in various ways, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he's spoken to us most clearly, most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. His son, Jesus, has come. So we have the complete word of God brought to us. Really quick aside, uh, because this came up recently, was um, sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm a prophet. And so they have a, a word from the Lord. They have a prophecy. Um, what I've noticed is that I have never heard anyone in the church context say, well, I drew lots, so I have the word of the Lord. It, it's, it's always, I'm, I'm a prophet, or the Lord said to me, why don't we draw lots? They did in Acts chapter 1. That's how they figured out who was going to replace Judas. So why don't we draw lots anymore? Because we have the completed word of God. But I just think it's funny that nobody ever says, well, I drew lots, and that's how I know today. Um, just an odd omission. So they have all of these things. They have the word of God. They have the right leader. They have the presence of God. We, don't we have that? We've been told not just to go rescue Kayla from the Philistines. We've been told go to all the nations, go throughout the entire world and save them. Make disciples. And, and the command is go, make disciples, teach them to obey all I've said to you. We have the word of God. And then we have this tremendous promise at the end. Jesus said, and behold, I'm with you until the very end of the age. We have God's presence with us. We have the right leader. We have the word of God. We have God's presence. Don't be afraid. So as you're out making disciples, as you're out reaching the world, it can be intimidating. We are not, sorry guys, this, I hate to break it to you, we're not the smartest people in the world. We're not the most articulate. We're not the most beautiful. We're not the most powerful. We don't have the biggest TikTok following. We don't have all of those things. But that's who David had, and look at what God did through him. So Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, he said to us, the marginalized, the, the outcasts, the, the weirdos. Go make disciples of all nations. I'm with you to the end of the age. That's the hope that we have. So if we're frightened when we engage in this, if we start talking about religious matters and we get the, the cold fingers, you ever had that feeling like ice water is running through your chest and your hands get really cold and your mouth dries up and ah, that's fear. That is not the opposite of faith. What faith is, is in the middle of this, Lord, please say something intelligent because I'm going I'm to say something foolish. But Lord, would you say something intelligent through this? Because we have the word, because we have the leader, because we have the presence. So this is the picture of faith and fear working together, not in, in opposition. So now we come to verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David uh, to Keilah, he came down with the ephod in his hand. Now, what had happened in the last chapter is Doag, the, the, Mo, the Edomite, narked on David and on, on Ahimelech. And so Saul said, go and kill him. And what we hear is that Doag went and killed all the priests who wear the ephod. And now we hear again that Ahimelech had fled to David and he brought the ephod, brought an ephod with him. So question number one, what's an ephod? And question number two, what did he bring with him? Well, an ephod, it depends. It could be a number of things. Usually it's thought of as a, um, a robe. Sometimes it's also a, a, um, like a skirt that a man would wear. 
in the context of uh, the cultic life of Israel, the ephod was the linen clothes that the priest would wear. It was also the high priest had a very special one. And the, the special ephod that he wore had 12 stones with the names of Israel on them on his chest. He had two um, stones on the shoulders that said, holy to the Lord. And most importantly, what was in the ephod was something called the Urim and the Thummim. And we talked about that previously. In chapter 14, it came up. The, Umim and the, Thummim, the Urim and the Thummim were a way of casting lots before the Lord, apparently. It's not abundantly clear how it worked or what it was, but in chapter 14, Saul says, if this, then give Urim, if that, give Thummim. And so that was kind of how they determined things. So that apparently is what Abiathar has shown up with, is the priest's holy ephod with the Urim and the Thummim in it. And this is when he shows up, he joins David, he's finally fled. So that means all of that was going on while David was delivering Kayla is um, uh, um, Doeg the Edomite is killing the priests. Probably if the timeline lines up that way. Not a pretty picture. So now we cut the scene and uh, David knew that Saul was plotting. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah. So spies have gotten out. Uh, maybe somebody from Keilah has come and, and told Saul. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has bars and gates. And Saul summoned all the people of war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. A whole bunch of problems here. Where was Saul when the Philistines were raiding the town and stealing the grain off the threshing floor? He wasn't summoning, hey, the, the Kayla's under attack. Let's get the men of war and go down and defend them. He wasn't there for them. And wasn't that what God said when he appointed Saul to be king? Is he said, he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. Guess what he didn't do? The only thing that's going to stir him now to go to Kayla is David's there. So he thinks David went into a walled city. There are gates. There are bars. He's inside a contained area. If we go and we besiege it, we can get David. What about the inhabitants of Kayla? He's just, he's really lost touch with reality. And then the worst part is what he said at the beginning. He says, God has given him into my hand. He thinks that because David did what he wouldn't do, what he was commissioned to do, because David did that, that means God's given him to me. Where did he get that idea? He doesn't have the ephod. The ephod has just shown up in Kayla. He doesn't have a, pr a prophet coming to him. He, he will not hear from another prophet again until he drags, um, drags Samuel up from the grave. So he's just figuring, because I'm the king, I guess. This is the plan. Is God, I, God has given, me in, given him into my hand. It's, it's foolish boasting. It's, it's way over the top. But that word hand comes up a number of times in this section, and it means something significant. It's, it means power under his authority. That, that's what he's talking about. God, is, God has put David in my hand so that I can do with him what I want. When, um, when Himalach, or Abiathar shows up with the ephod, he has the ephod in his hand. He can use the ephod appropriately. David told, or God told David, when you go down to Keilah, I will give them into your hand. It, it has this picture of authority. So that's what, Dave, or what uh, Saul is saying here is, God's put David in my hand, and I'm going to destroy him, so let's mount up and go. It's just not a very pretty picture for, for Saul. It's, it's not looking good for him. So verse 9, somehow David finds out. 
David knew that Saul was plotting against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. We need to talk to God. So isn't it ironic that Saul, by having all the priests killed, actually put into David's hand the most important means of communicating with God at that point, the ephod, the way to inquire, the, the sanctified, ordained way of inquiring of the Lord. He just put it into David's hands. And so David says, bring the ephod. And David asks, O Lord, he has two questions. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul has come, uh, seeks to come to Caleb to destroy the city on my account, to destroy the city on my account. Not to deliver them from the Philistines, but to destroy the city. Will the men of Caleb surround me into their hands? Will Saul come down as your servant heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. So, to ask things of the Urim and Thummim, you had to ask one question with a, a A or B, yes or no answer. So the first question is, will Saul come down to Kayla? And the answer is a definitive, clear yes, he will come. So then David says, will the men of Kayla surrender me into the hands of Saul? What an odd question to ask. He just delivered them from their enemies. He just defeated the Philistines for them. And his next question is, are they going to turn me over to him? And the answer is, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600 by now, arose and departed from Kayla, and they went wherever they could go. They're scattered. Why would the men of Kayla turn David over? What, what could they possibly gain from this? Um, David knew that Saul was plotting against him, verse 9, so they probably had received word you know, it didn't go just exclusively to David. It was probably general knowledge that he was, there was an army marching toward them. So the cause of this army coming is David. What do we do with David? They'd been dominated by the Philistines for a while and had grain stolen, so they're already in a weakened position. They're not in a position to fight. They, they've lost, probably lost men. They've lost um, food. They're in a weakened state. David has delivered him, but he's only got 600 men. What is that going to be against the army of Israel coming? The last time we saw the army of Israel, it was around 3,000. That's, that's not a good number. And so again, Kayla is this border town with the Philistines. What happens if we're fighting against Saul and the Philistines attack again? We're just going to be in, in bad shape. So it doesn't say why they, turn, they were willing to turn David over, but I think it's pretty clear fear. They were afraid. Everything that they could lose laid before them. They were afraid of Saul. They were afraid of the Philistines. And they were fearful of sheltering David. And so fear drove them to probably turn him over. So whereas I said at the beginning, fear is not the opposite of faith. In this case, this is fear muted by faith. This is, this is fear tamping down faith. This is fear saying you can't trust. You can only look with your eyes and assess your situation. That's, that's the only way to do it. That's not faith. That's fear in, in opposition to faith. And I think and to be fair to the t-shirt the selling company, I think this is what they're talking about, is not that. Not fear tamping down or, or uh, eliminating faith, but fear, uh, faith overcoming fear. So this is what can be arrayed against us as we're going out and we're doing the things that Jesus has told us is fear can appear very real 
and it can be something that startles us. That's why it was really important that um, when I fear, I will call on the Lord, what can men do to me? That psalm, that's why Psalm 57 was so important, because it puts it all in perspective. Um, in Hebrews 2, the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through who fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you get the contrast there? The fear of death leads to lifelong slavery. When I am afraid, I call on the Lord, what can men do to me, is the opposite of that. So when we look at the situation here, what you've got is you've got David and his men, afraid but acting in faith. You've got Saul, totally out of his mind. And you've got the people of Cala struggling with what do we do. It's possible for people to have received benefits from Christians and from Christianity and to still turn against us. I mean, the prime example, right? Uh, um, Judas, he, he had his feet washed by Jesus. He walked in ministry with him and he still turned against him. So for us, I think one of the big places we can see people who have benefited from Christianity in a general sense, and Christians in particular, would be something like Western culture. When you consider Western culture before Christianity rose, Roman culture primarily, that was Western culture, it was brutal. It was vicious. If you didn't want a child, if you had a girl and you wanted a boy, you took the child out and left it in the field. The child would either die from exposure by not being fed, by being out in the, in the wilds, or a wild animal would come and eat the child. I mean, it was just brutal. Women were not given equal status in society. The clever ones could manipulate and work their way through, but women were just second-class citizens. Slaves were treated as less than, they weren't considered human beings. It wasn't an issue. You could do to a slave whatever you wanted, and there was nothing illegal about it. Men were the epitome of society. And their sexuality was up to them. If, they, if somebody below them in the social scale came by and they wanted to have sex with them, they did. It was a brutal way to live. Western culture benefited from the Christians living in the middle of it and believing and acting. So they didn't just look at children and go, you know what, we believe in the imago Dei. We believe that all human beings have dignity and worth before God, and you shouldn't put that child out and expose that child like that. They said that, and then they went and picked up the child, and they raised the child as their own. They didn't just say, you can't treat women as second-class citizens. They welcomed women in and called them brothers, which I maintain is not an insult. It doesn't erase women. It elevates women to the status of equal inheritors of the inheritance from our father. They elevated the role of women. They put them in places that the Romans were like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? They took sex and sanctified it. They said there is a holy and a right way which sex can be used, and that's within the confines of a covenant-bound marriage, not with just anybody you choose. And they were countercultural because they said the power dynamic of the rich and powerful exploiting others, that's wrong. James said when, when a rich person comes into church, you say, oh, sit here next to me. When a poor person comes in, you say, sit at my feet. James doesn't say that's the right way to do it because you know what? They might be a big tither if you go with the nice guy. 
He said, you're defaming your brother who's sitting at your feet. It equalized all of humanity. That revolutionized Western society as it sank in. And look at what Western society is going now. You Christians, you're oppressive. You're killjoys. You're, you're, you hate people. And it's simply not true. So it's possible to benefit somebody and to have them turn on you. You can have church members who are nominally part of your church, involved, engaged, and who just turn on you and leave. Slam the door, slander, say bad things on the way out. And heaven forbid our children sometimes can turn and say, that wasn't good. What you raised me as was wrong, and it was horrible. And it, It's listening to what the world is saying. So where does that come from? It comes from a number of different places. Um, partly is because we're not going to execute Christianity perfectly. Um, bad news, we're still sinners, and we're still going to mess it up. And so we have a history that doesn't look particularly great in places. We had Christians who were vehemently opposed to slavery, and we had Christians who de defended it from the Bible. Um, we had misogyny, the, the idea of women's places in the home, barefoot and pregnant, make me a sandwich, and you can't do anything else, and that's not biblical. Lydia had a flourishing purple trade. That was a lot of money. Go to the Psalm, 30, uh, the Psalm 31 woman. She had an international trade. She woke in the morning and, and made belts and sold them uh, across the sea. So that wasn't right. That, we didn't execute that perfectly. Within a church, we can have cliques and, and social groups, and we can exclude people who come, and, and we don't know them, and we don't feel comfortable with them. We can divide up, and that's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's James' exact point, is don't treat the person dressed nice different than you do the pe person who's in need. We can, at times, lack grace and charity. Guilty. Been there, done that. And the, ra the, the tragic part is we can err in perfectionism. Well, I got over that sin. I don't understand why you can't. It's not that hard. And we can demand impossible things from others. So the, one of the reasons that the world can turn against us is because we're not perfect. And we should never tell people we're going to do this perfectly. What we should be saying is we're going to try really hard to do it well. And by the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, hopefully we'll execute pretty well. And the reason for that is sin. Sin is what pushes us to mess it up. We haven't been totally set free from it yet. Sin, since it dominates in the world outside, is going to distort and pervert that. What people want is they want the good without the God. In other words, they want to go back to Eden and be left alone. And we'll decide what's right and what's wrong. And that's how you come up with the, the, the moral platitude, uh, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Where does that come from? Why should I not hurt anybody else? It's just it doesn't work. Sin drives us in that way. And then there's always Satan. There's, there's Saul. Satan does not, is not responsible for every wrong thing you've ever done. Um, he's quite happy to just sit and watch you do it on your own, cheer you on. Occasionally, he'll get in and prod and poke and, and distort and whisper in your ear and kind of draw you away. But these are all the things that can array against us that can cause people to fear and doubt and, and lead them away. So often what lies behind that fear that, that would lead Kayla to turn on David, would lead people we have helped and blessed to turn against us is fear. Fear that I might lose power and position. Fear that I might be taken advantage of. 
fear that the world may corrupt my perfect child that I've raised so absolutely perfectly in their pristine. Uh, fear that I might be missing out if I don't do what I want, if I'm not who I claim I want to be. So David's troops were afraid. And instead of caving into that fear, they heard the word of the Lord and they followed their good leader. The people of Kayla were delivered, blessed by David. And instead of saying, we're with David, they're ready to turn him over to his ad adversaries. Um, friends, this is what happened to Jesus. Judas kissed him and said, Rabbi, and turned him over to the, the mob. Jesus said, don't think you're going to be as a disciple better than your master. This is what we can expect in this world as we go through and we do these things, but we don't have to give in to the fear. We've got all the benefits. Not only do we have the word of the Lord, the leader of the Lord, the Lord's presence, we're sealed with the Lord's presence. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's with us always. And so we can, we can press on. We can go through this. So the result for David, verse 13. When Saul was told David had escaped from Kayla, he gave up the expedition. Oh, good. We're delivered. Yay. End of story. Put your Bibles away. No, nope, keeps going. 14. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David remained on the run. For a period of time it wasn't time yet and so that fear that that worry about being caught that that being on the run all the time remained with him but the last phrase is the important one but god did not give him into his hand saul said god has given him into my given him into my hand and then the commentator says uh no he didn't it's not going to happen so how can we fight fear uh, we fight fear by remembering we have the word of the Lord. He's given us great and tremendous promises. He has said, I will be with you until the end of the age. What period of time does that exclude? None. He's with us. He's given us a great commission. We have the promise of his word that the, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world like the seas, the water cover the seas. He, he will have his way. It's just going to be rocky between now and then. So we fight fear by saying, we know we're in the right camp. We're with the right king. We're heading in the right direction. The world is arrayed against us. We're not going to give up. That's, I think, the picture that, that the uh, author is painting for us is, is to be on the right side doesn't mean an easy life. Sometimes it means worse. And that's the picture with David. Let's pray. Lord, the, the glancing through church history, there have been peaks and there have been valleys. There have been times of great, beautiful things and times of horrific horrors done in the name of Christ. And Lord, that's us. We're in the middle of that, that mix. We're in, in that, that troubled time because we need the king to return and reign over us. So Lord, in those times when the world is on our side and we seem to be the, the hip crowd, the in ones, help us to not lose faith to not take our eyes off of who is in charge and what's going on. And Lord, when the world then turns on us, on, our, on its heel, and claims that we're the evil ones, we're the troublemakers, we're the problem with the world, we have done everything wrong, that we are setting the world upside down, Lord, help us to have the fear that's right and wise, but not give in to that fear, but fill us with the fear of the Lord. And thank you for this example from David and his misfits. 
Um, Lord, that's certainly us with Jesus and his misfits. But we trust in you, and we look forward to your deliverance. What can man do to me? In Christ's name, amen. Uh, let's stand. We're going to sing uh, one last song. Thank you.